Hey, everybody, this is Jimmy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's episode is being brought to you by our sponsor, Humor for Humanity, a social enterprise that I founded a few years ago that raises spirits, funds, and awareness for nonprofits, charities, and social causes. Our mission is your mission, Humor for Humanity. You can find out more information at jimmytingle.com. Thank you so much and enjoy today's show. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy. Welcome to the show. I am so excited today to have my guest, Mark Marin. He's back in town, ladies and gentlemen. He started here in Boston way back in the day when I was the open mic host at the Ding Ho on Tuesday nights. Mark stopped in for one of his few sets back in the day in 1984, and he has since taken the comedy world and the podcasting world by storm, and it's completely a fluke in many respects. Um, and I will get into that in a second, but he's coming to the Wilbur this Saturday night. Let's see, that's uh, April 16th, this Saturday night. Two shows at the Wilbur. You can get tickets at thewilbur.com, or you can also get tickets at his website, wtfpod.com. And there you can become familiar with this podcast if you're not already familiar with it and his extensive tour date. He's got a ton of dates coming up. But for those of you who may not know Mark, for over 25 years, Mark Marin has been writing and performing raw, honest, thought-provoking comedy. In September of 2009, he's changed the podcast landscape when he started WTF with Mark Marin, featuring conversations with iconic personalities, check this out, such as Conan O'Brien, Terry Gross, Robin Williams, Keith Richards, okay, Ben Stiller, Lorne Michaels, and President Barack Obama. I'm not kidding you. He actually interviewed Obama in his garage in Los Angeles. I recently listened to an episode with George Clooney as well, which is fascinating. And Mark gets into all this, re uh, all this enthusiasm about doing stand-up again after this pandemic and getting back on stage. And he was just coming off a great gig at in, uh, the Ridge Theater, Ridgeton Theater, I think Ridgefield. it was in Connecticut. Ridgefield. Ridgefield yeah. in Connecticut, which was awesome. And I got so psyched listening to that interview just and just felt the importance and the significance of stand-up in my own life, listening to you just go on and on about how, how great it was. So he's a legend in the stand-up comedy community, folks. He's appeared in many television talk shows. David Letterman, Craig Ferguson, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers, Charlie Rose, and Bill Maher. And he has appeared, check this out, on Conan O'Brien more than any other comedian. And because Conan O'Brien is no longer on the air, that record will stand for eternity. Forever. Welcome. <laughs> the one, the only, Mr. Mark Marin. How are you, pal? Thank you, buddy. That's quite an intro. <laughs> I think we're about, is it time to wrap it up? <laughs> I want to make sure I hit all the bases. <laughs> Great to see you, Mark. Uh, I can't you, tell man. you, man. How impressed I am with with the with WTF and the podcast because as you said to me off stage many times this was a fluke you were like working yeah. at Air America right it was desperation you know I think <laughs> fluke is a nice word for that it was a, it was one of those positive flukes you know like I, I just said this to a friend of mine I said and I said this to him honestly you know if, if the things that only happened to you were good things it would be a great thing <laughs> you yeah. know but but no it was one of these things where you know i had nothing to do i was going through a bad divorce and uh i'd been sort of we i was out you know they fired me from the job at air america and uh i had no idea what to do but we were at still being that they were good liberals you know they fired us from the from the we were doing a streaming video show yeah. but they didn't kick us out of the building so <laughs> we still had a we still had a month on our contract so 
I knew people were doing podcasts. So we just started hijacking the studios, the, the radio studios late at night when no one was in them. We knew the tech and we just started doing it, you know, bringing you know, guests up on the freight elevator. Having It wasn't the exact show that it is now then, but that's how it started. Me and Brendan McDonald committed to just doing a new show every Monday and Thursday. And that was that was the only commitment we made. And we kept it a new show every Monday and Thursday since September 2009. And wow. it kind of evolved into the show that it is now. I figured out how to do it from my garage at home, but it was all like, you know, I was staring down the barrel of a stage of my life, just doing, you know, B rooms and having nobody know me. It was, it was a dark time, Jimmy. I could have gone either way in the garage. It could have been, a, you know, <laughs> could have been found hanging in there oh, or, man. Or, or, or start the podcast. Well, I have to tell you, I didn't know Brendan McDonald was, he's your producer now. So you guys have been together since 2004. That's Since Air America, he was a kid, like he was a, an associate producer on my first ever radio show at Air America. So however long that is, yeah, that's 16, yeah, it's like a long time. Wow. And so that's fabulous because he's an awesome producer and it's so great. It, it's such a great team. And that, I'm sure that's been a big part of your success. All of it. You know, I like it. We, when we talk about like if we're ever going to stop, I'm like, well, I'm not I'm not going to even think about it. You got to If you want to stop, we'll stop. So we have this weird standoff. We're like, there's no reason to stop. So let's just keep going, you know? Right. So, Mark, um, your, your roots go back to Boston big time. Like I they said, do. I remember introducing you at the open mic night at the Dingho in 1984 in the summer. Then you left town. Yeah, you were. Yeah. I remember you were sweaty and playing harmonica. <laughs> I'm still sweaty and I'm still playing huh? <laughs> I was I was the pink wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just remember that place because there was a, a, a minute there because I did comedy in college a little bit. I was in a team with the guy. We had put together an act, but then he graduated and I was like, well, I'll do it myself. And it was a very drunken summer because I was, you know, I was doing open mics yeah. and I was living up on Egremont Street in Alston, you know, in a in a room that should was supposed to be a patio. It was like so hot. It was humid. And I just remember buying bottles of vodka and going to play it against Sam's and waiting around. But I remember all the guys that I, I started with at that first wave. Yeah, and I made it out to the Ding Ho a couple of times. Like, I remember one night you were hosting, one night Lenny was hosting. I remember one and I, one night I, I played against Sam's when Kenny Rogerson was, Rogerson was hosting, and he got so shit-faced that he forgot to put me on. I waited there all night. I still remember that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, and and. Do you remember when Air America, you, 2004, we had the unconventional comedy convention at my theater in Davis Square. You, I booked you there, but you yeah. also, I went on the air. I think it might have been with Barry Kremens on your show. You were doing it out of a yeah. cafe there in Davis Square. Then we were doing, we did a oh, month yeah. long program of, of just political humor in, in July, yeah. I guess it was, right, of, of right. 2004. We had you, we had Jim Morris, Durst. I think we had Janine Garofalo. It was a great Kremens, you know, it was an awesome time. It's so funny. I used to live, like, when I was in Boston, when I went back to Boston, you know, to start my comedy in 80, 88, maybe. I lived in Somerville before, you know, anyone cared about Somerville. It was sort of like this strange little, yeah. you know, uh, working class, little dark yeah. community. Yeah. And I lived in an attic <laughs> on Cottage Ave right there. <laughs> Well, and then, like when I was there, that's when they built Red Bones, and then everything changed. Wow! After that. But it, so that's really I just remember bad. I was so excited, just going to Dunkin' Donuts, 
they built an entire bank building next to the house I was living in. Yeah. And if so I was up half the night, you know, <laughs> doing drugs and doing comedy. And then they were like, they were pounding steel foundation rods into the ground with this drop thing <laughs> at seven in the morning. Oh, God. Oh, but yeah, man. I remember like we did the America thing. And I remember those shows that you did. Well, Air America happened. Uh, it was an interesting thing. You know, I got called by, you know, Liz Winstead, who yeah. like I also used to do gigs with back in Boston. Like the weird thing about New England, when I talk about starting doing comedy there, is the whole thing was built. There were clubs in town, but the entire experience was built around one-nighters, right? Yeah. So you would, being an opener, it was usually a two-person show, and your opener would do a half hour, the headliner would do 45 minutes, and you'd have to drive them. Yeah. So there'd be these guys that would come in from other places and you'd just be in a car with some bitter headliner from somewhere <laughs> and and driving to like Machias, Maine, you know, <laughs> and you'd hear them do their act twice. You'd, you'd sit there in a car with a guy for two hours and he's talking and then he'd get up on stage and say this exact same thing. <laughs> uh, I could tell you who that was. Sam Greenfield. Okay. Sam Greenfield. Yeah. Yep. Oh man, I but remember anyway, yeah, so he was funny. Yeah. Yeah. That was that's and I used to go like I once I once drove to Machias. I actually drove to Machias, dude. Uh which is the the furthest point east in this country in Maine. I drove up there like eight hours or whatever it was in my car to open for Frank Santos. <laughs> the magician. No, he's a hypnotist, the right? Hypnotist. The X the R rated hypnotist. Oh man, did you have to drive him? No, I didn't have to drive oh, him. I think great. he flew in. I'm the idiot driving. Uh, we used to do all those gigs, dude. Yeah. Go to Taunton, go to Taunton Regency, Pancho Villas and Lemonster, Franks and Franklin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny Yee's. Yep, yep. Oh man, Mark. Yeah. You know, all those what? you're bringing such you know, in, interesting memories back. Okay, but yeah, all man. that. I mean, it just makes your success so so much more profound and yeah. just sweeter, uh, from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, no, no one's gonna say I didn't earn it, Jim. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, really, it's all about taking the initiative in this business. It's completely yeah. about taking the initiative because there's no agents in Boston. There's nobody in wherever that was in Maine going, "Hey, you know, we want to really help you out here." It's all about the, taking the initiative and doing it. I have a couple of questions. Number one, when when in stand-up, in this whole series of one-nighters and working the door at the comedy store in L.A. and working, you know, just these one-nighters all over the place and just hand-to-mouth and trying to get sober and all these things, at what point did you think, you know what, I think I can do this? I don't know if I ever felt that, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, because you kind of go on this assumption. I was not a grown-up around the nature of show business. Yeah. I didn't know how anything was done. I just knew that I wanted to be a comic and that's what I dedicated my life to. And I, and for some reason, after a certain point, I didn't see any other way to go. Like there are certain people that are sort of like, I'm going to try it. And if it doesn't work out, I'll do this. Like certainly you, you, at some point you have sort of a plan B, but then you get to a certain point where you're like, you know, if I don't do this, I could always, and you're like, oh shit, there used to be something there. I don't think of that. You know what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're sort of in, you're a lifer, and there's no going back. But I don't know that I ever felt like, you know, there was no decision-making process around, like, now it's time for me to be successful, and it happened. Yeah. I mean, I had I had a manager out here, I had agents out here sometimes, 
and I get opportunities and I had deals and stuff, but nothing ever went anywhere. Yeah. And it wasn't until, you know, that out of desperation and out of just the, the ability to do it occurred that the podcast happened in 2009 that, it, you know, the fluke of it was by the time I did the podcast, I knew I was, I could do that. I, I had, I was compelling on, on those mics. Yeah. I, I don't know why. I don't know what that is. It's a gift, I guess. And I like doing radio. But then, like, we did the podcast, and the fluke of it was that it just the cosmic timing worked out that we were there at the beginning of the popularizing of this medium. And the industry of podcasting just started to grow around us. None of us knew how to make money. None of us knew how to do anything. But, you know, it was at that time that there were people building networks. We were all doing each other's shows. There was a sort of community around it. No one really knew how to make money. I was, are you kidding? I was, I was, I thought I was NPR. I was offering people donation packages. My entire house was filled with envelopes with a t-shirt and three stickers in it. <laughs> the people that would give $10 a month, you know? Yeah. So it was unclear how we were going to really make a living. And it wasn't that important. It was just that we were doing it and we were engaged with it. And it was exciting. And most, all the early podcasts were just me apologizing to people. Like I would have comics in like, it, that's how I developed my, my, my style of interviewing was me. You know, I would invite celebrities over to talk about my problem. It was kind of a, it was sort of, it was all service, Jim. Yeah. I was making an amends. Yeah. Like, it was just me having comedians over and saying things like, you know, I think I kind of pissed you off that time. And they're like, I don't remember that at all. And you sort of, you realize how much of that stuff you're just making up, like you're holding on to these things. Like that guy's never going to talk to me. And you go talk to that guy. He's like, I don't even know your name. You know, like it's so <laughs> hilarious. You know, uh, Mark, you, I heard, I don't know if we said this off stage or maybe I heard you say it, or maybe we talked about it before, but you were talking about the ability to talk alone to yourself on the mic yeah, and right, not right, have right, a right. guest. Yeah. And just the confidence right. of just talking to, did that just happen because you were late at night in the studio no. and nobody there? Kind of. Kind of. I was always nervous about it. But, you know, the guys who, the real radio guys, it's sort of like, you know, when you're a comic and you're paying your dues and you're building your time, right? So there's, there comes a time where, like, I got 20. I got a good 20. I got a good half hour. And then, you know, eventually, you know, you just, you cross the hour plateau and then, you know, you have a freedom of mind. But it takes yeah. years. So... The same with, with radio. There was a time, like, the, I think what happened was I had to fill in for somebody. I don't remember if it was Cedar or Garofalo or somebody, but they needed a, a guest host, and it was a solo gig. And I was terrified because like, you, you're thinking, like, how do I fill this air? And you listen to pro guys. A lot of the right-wing guys are very good at it. You know, you, you know Rush, you know, yeah, wherever the hell he's, you know, burning. Uh, you know, had a, a, a Rush Limbaugh could, could sort of pace himself. And he'd just sit there for hours filling people's head with garbage, but he had a great style. Yeah, <laughs> you very know? talented. But, so you sort of, yeah, so like, you know, you just sort of try to find the freedom of mind. You kind of look out into the world and you gotta, you've got to start to enjoy yourself talking and also, you know, not really mind that it's not being received anywhere necessarily. It, it just, it was just, a, it was like learning how to juggle, you know, when you get that third ball in there, you're like, I'm doing it. And I don't know how it happened, but that's how it happened, out of necessity. And so so from there, you and Brendan just put this show together, and the podcast was brand new. The whole style was brand new. Well, yeah, a lot of people were kind of doing radio shows. And we had, at the beginning, we had segments. We had a couple of guests. We were trying a lot of different things. But once I moved to Los Angeles, I would generally do a 10- to 15-minute monologue of some kind 
about myself. And then, be, you know, eventually it evolved into a, you know, in a long form interview. Show. Right. And Brendan's a genius, you know, so, you know, his, we are very specific about the audio nature of the podcast. We don't do video because there's a certain amount of crafting for the conversation that happens editorially. And, you know, and we just, he's, he's very protective of, of me. And he's you know, like, this guy's been listening to me talk for 20 years. I'm like, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So, <laughs> but, but our working relationship, we're, you know, we're 50, 50 partners in this venture and we have been since the beginning. And that's just, you know, he's as essential as I am. And we have a, we have a thing worked out. We don't fight, you know, we don't, you know, and I trust him implicitly with everything. And that's the way it that's goes. That's great, man. That's great. And that's something that just happened out of nowhere as well. You know, just happened to meet him. Yeah, kind of. You know, he, I, I swear to God, I met him. He was like 24, 25 years old. And, you know, for years, you know, after we started the podcast, he was doing, you know, he was working at Sirius. He, you know, he's sort of moonlighting with the podcasting, doing it under the radar. He couldn't, I couldn't bring his name, you know, at, you know, when, when I was being interviewed because he didn't want to get into trouble with his other job. And then I remember there was like, I guess it's probably about, well, 10 years ago now already where you know maybe eight years ago he's like i'm going to come on to the podcast full time it's just gonna just gonna do the podcast i was like hey wait man you know you got a family i got i got nothing to lose you sure you want to don't be crazy you know <laughs> this could all go down the toilet and it's just me you know i'm, I'm just gonna lose my shitty out but he was like no, believe me i did the research i'm like okay wow. let's do it so it's been it's so That's we've been fabulous. exclusive on this you know it's been our been our it's been our nut you know our our, uh, our business for uh you know for yeah, a long hugely time hugely successful i just googled it today i mean i know you spent many many weeks months if probably years in the top 10 top 20 podcasts in the country which is remarkable we still do all right obama was at the house we still do all right you know they do they do this big thing where you know they, they it's called the edison ranking i guess and it's you know really based on listenership and we're still up there man we're still in the top you know like we, we're like 22 23 yeah. you know in 12 years in that's not nothing oh. you know and uh you know considering there's a million podcasts but yeah the obama thing was kind of mind-blowing you know I, I back then i lived in a shitty little house less than a thousand square feet in that broken down garage where i, where I started yeah. the show and i remember we get the you know his people reached out and they're like you want to interview obama i'm like what am i going to come to the white house he's like no he wants to come to the garage I'm like what are you kidding me <laughs> And uh, when they first called you, did you think it was like a prank call or did you think it was serious? No, we knew it was serious because there was talk about, you know, Biden doing it when he was vice president. There was people within the White House that that were fans of the show. And then I think what happened was, you know, in that last year of his presidency, they thought, well, let's get him out there, you know, because, you know, you know, the possibility of lame duckness, you know, sort of happens at that right. point, you know, and, and you, you know, the last year of your second term. and. But he became a very, you know, so it was like you know, he wanted to get out there. And, 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 and I think it was a way to bring attention uh, in a unique way. And it certainly brought attention to the medium of podcast. And, you know, and a lot was going on that week. You, you know, it was a different type of interview than I was used to doing because we really, we had, an, you know, a tight hour. We had, you know, I had to do questions. I couldn't wing it. There was stuff in the news that happened, you know, within the last few days of him coming to where we didn't even know if he was going to come. There was that horrendous shooting with that kid who shot all those people at that black church oh, wow. that had happened you know happened like that yeah wow. like a couple of days before and um and there was a lot of sort of stuff that had to happen that they had to come the secret service had to come to secure the house to figure out how to secure the perimeter i had to ask my neighbor 
if it was okay to put snipers on his roof. <laughs> and he was very excited. He was retired. It was the greatest thing that happened <laughs> in like a year. He was a, he was a, the snipers are intense, man. So like, you know, the day of, they, they put these two things, these isolated phone lines in my one, the spare bedroom, these two boxes that are there for if the entire global communication system breaks down that he's got a line out. And it, they, they were just humming in that room for two days before he got there. And you know, I'm just thinking like, I hope we don't need to use those, you know? And, and, and you know, and it was so funny because, you know, you had Secret Service, about 12, 15 Secret Service, the cops, they, they had a tent, the driveway. So we had a walkway up from the road. I had to get the, all the cars off the streets. And uh, it's funny, I was, out, I was out on the deck, you know, with the Secret Service guys. And I'm like, how am I going to know he's coming? He's like, we'll give you a heads up, 20 minute heads up. And then we saw, you know, the presidential uh, helicopter. Right. Like there's two Ospreys, these two small planes that are odd looking that travel with the helicopter. And they, they were going to land over at the Rose Bowl, which is 10 minutes from my house, as opposed to stop up traffic in the entire city of Los Angeles to get there from Beverly Hills. And like, I saw him in the air. I'm like, I guess he's coming. He's close. <laughs> That's him. And then he, uh, yeah. It's wild. He showed up and, you know, he'd been in the neighborhood before. Went to Occidental, which was really down the street. From I didn't I know lived. that. Yeah. Cool. So was he, was he friendly? Was he nice? Was he loose with you? Uh, totally. Yeah. Very, you know, cause they're like, you're, you're kind of jacked up, yeah. you know, but yeah, everyone's just a person, you know, he just happens to be president yeah. and it's a big deal. Right. But when he showed up, there's a bunch of people, you know, he's like, we do, is this going to be fun? He said, I'm like, I don't know. I hope so. And, uh, but he's very disarming, very candid. Yeah. I remember on the show, I asked him, uh, I asked him, are you, are you nervous about this? He said, if I was nervous about this, we'd all be in trouble. <laughs> He's a funny guy. He is. He, he was very good. He was candid. You know, there was a lot of news made around the podcast because he, he said the N-word in context. And boy, that lit everything right. up. Man. I remember that. That lit yeah. everything up. I remember that. Yeah, because after that, like, we didn't expect that. But then we, I had to sort of insulate myself, you know, because everyone wanted. I had, you know, reporters out in the street trying to get comment. I'm like, look, man, it's all on the podcast. Well, I, d- I did two interviews about it. I did uh, Chris Hayes and I did Terry Gross. And that was another thing Brendan was like, Brendan was like, you know, we're not doing nothing. Don't talk to anybody. Talk to Chris. We'll talk to Terry Gross. That's it. And I'm like, okay, no problem. So let's go down the line. Chris Hayes, MSNBC, Terry Gross, and Tingle. Those yeah. are the three interviews. Tingle. What about him? <laughs> well, it was just, well, yeah, it was like uh, in Tingle. <laughs> right. No, no, I'll talk to you. But I'm just talking immediately right. following that because he's used that word and there was like all this clickbait and craziness around it, both politically and otherwise, you know, the right, the right wing was going right. nuts with it. You know, like, why can he use that word? It's right. like, but, but they were, you know, they were just looking yeah. for anything. So we just detached from all of it. And I thought, you know, Brendan handled that yeah. very well. But that, that's great, Mark. You know, one of the things I remember you talking about, uh, moving away from, I know you, you, you did a lot of politics back in the day when you first started because it's yeah. on the front pages all the time. And we did a lot of commentary. Air America was clearly a political show. It was that was the whole purpose of it. That was his reason for uh, coming right. into existence. But you also talked about what connects with people. And you were talking about your cats. And you were talking about how, like, the strangest things you would be surprised that actually what connected with the audience. Well, that's it. You know, like, I. Well, I got, I mean, I, I, when I started the podcast, both Brendan and I were like, this, we're not doing yeah. podcasts. Um, and we didn't because, you know, life is, is filled with nuance and stories and existential challenges. And that was really my forte. I think I'm better at it. 
you know, when I showed up at Air America between me and you, my sense of civics was limited. You know, I, I, I showed up with a, you know, a American government for dummies yeah. book because I, I didn't feel confident in my understanding of the political system. And I had to do a political show. It used to drive me crazy. But all these guys I was working with, Brendan included, and Dan Pashman and Jonathan Larson, the producers, they knew what was up. But I was not part of the dialogue. I was just your, your, your standard kind of like reactive, angry comic. So for me, it was like authority was the problem. You know, understanding the Senate was beyond me. So I had to, you know, I was just like, fuck all of them, you know. So I had to figure it out and, you know, learn how to get into the the sort of uh, the, the dialogue of politics on a day to day basis and, and how it all worked. It was all a very hands on education, but it's exhausting. And I believe with politics that, you know, after a certain point, when you do it as a pundit or as a commentator, you'll find eventually you're not really having your own thoughts about it. Uh, you're sort of like following talking points and following a, an agenda that, you, you know, it's hard to connect your own ideas with it because there's a momentum yeah. to it. And that bothered me. And uh, so when we detached from it, we really detached from it. And I'll talk about politics. And certainly during Trump, I, I engaged around my fear of fascism. But, you know, it wasn't really partisan politics. You know, I am by nature a, a liberal person, but it was really existential difficulties. And I think, you know, for me, it should be whether it doesn't matter what political party you're with. If you're an American, you know, fascism should be seen as a threat not as the future, you know. So that became... Very well said. And that became... You know, so that became an issue. But uh, yeah, initially, and, and to this day, I still kind of blabber on about my cats. And like the, the breakthrough on Air America when I was on the radio was really about me overcooking some lentils. You know, I like, I, had, I went on this weird... And you got, you, got, you got to realize, man, I was getting up at three in the morning to do a six o'clock show till nine o'clock. And the reason we had to get there at like 3.30, 3 o'clock, was we had crunch news because we were we had to do news and commentary. And I had a co-host, Mark Riley, who was great, who you know was m supposed to carry most of the weight of the news. But we had to get there and put the show together. And we were also yeah. nuts and anal and, and you, know, uh, you know, like Brendan and Jonathan, everybody was like, you know, we had to yeah. do it right. We felt a lot of pressure. And we were writing original comedy every day. We had comedy writers. Yeah. It was crazy. But I was exhausted and I would get up, I would stop at Duncan and I get a, a, like a, a two large Duncans and a bag of M&Ms and I'd start shoveling that in into my face. So by six and I, yeah, I was like, it was like I was on blow, <laughs> Jimmy. By, by the time we went to air, I was sweating and, and furious, you know, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and I remember just going off like I the night before I, I tried to cook lentils and I forgot about them and they created this like almost like this resin, this tar. And I just went off on this long riff about lentil resin and how they probably used it to seal arrowheads and in the past. And I did this strange kind of primitive riff on on lentil resin, and it got all this email. There were people were like, "That was amazing," and I'm like, "Really? I got to talk about this more often." So then, I, so then I just started talking about my cats because at that time I, I trapped four cats in the alley in my house, and I didn't realize they were wild. And I trapped them in a shoebox and I brought them into my apartment. And I just wanted like friendly kittens, but I brought four wild animals into my house and I couldn't get them out. So <laughs> the, the adventure of the cats became this ongoing thing. And I realized that's what people connect with. What you really connect with 
on the mic and same with comedy if you really connect with it and you're passionate and you're not thinking about anything but you know telling that story people yeah. will connect with it. it that's really really interesting mark with stand-up you know i'm really interested in your process i'm interested in the show that you're going to be doing uh at the wilbur but i got so psyched listening to you and george clooney talking about when you were playing in connecticut yeah. and how great it was to be back on stage this was back in november of 21 but you were back on stage and yeah. just killing and loving it and thinking you know you were saying yeah. i don't think i've ever had so much fun doing stand-up in my life and uh i'm curious like i've had colin on colin quinn and, and gary goleman and paula i'm interested in people's processes because that's something we don't really talk about as comics it's such a a, a lonely not lonely but it's just a you know it's a solo enterprise and we we don't have any coaches really but no teachers and you and yeah and you're just out there <laughs> on stage and the audience is telling you what works and what doesn't work but i never really talked to, to many people about their process so what is your process yeah it's so funny you talk about that because I just did like a run kind of through New England. I did New Haven, Troy, New York, Laconia, New Hampshire, and um, Burlington. And those are the gigs. Those are the areas we used to do yeah. one-nighters in. It was so funny because I rented a car and I'm driving by myself in the fucking snow. And I'm like, I'm back here. It's back full circle. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but you got sold out houses, man. You come, you're coming in as a star now. That's right. That's true. And I appreciate that. But uh, my process has always been sort of the same. I don't know if it's the best process. Uh, you know, I always judge it against other people's process or what I think other people's process are. But when I'm trying to build an hour, and I gotta, I gotta tell you, during the pandemic, there was a period there where I was like, you know, I didn't miss comedy at all. You know, and I was sort of like, my first thought was like, maybe I'm all better. And then that made me question <laughs> why I do comedy. <laughs> you know, like, maybe I'm, I'm fine now. I don't have to, I don't have to seek out, the, I don't have to talk about my, my insanity with the strangers but um but then it, it, the funny thing is as soon as other people started doing i'm like all right here we go that guy's out there i guess i gotta go out there but my process which i can see very clearly now and i and in the past is like i have ideas i have things i've written down uh like i just wrote down that thing that you said that i said to you and this is what my process looks like a lot of post-its napkins pieces of paper i just wrote fascism is supposed to be a threat not the future. I didn't want to forget that because I never Excellent. said that before. That's awesome, man. So I don't know if that'll go anywhere, but I have, I have so many post-its and notebooks. And what I do to really build an hour is I'll put myself in a position. Like this last time, you know, I had a gig. I had booked at the New York Comedy Festival. So right when we started to work, I knew that I had to have a new hour at least to do that. So that's in my mind because I never know where the new hour is going to come from. I'm always sort of like, I don't know if I got it in me. And then what I'll do is when I got enough ideas on a piece of paper, I think I had one or two bits left over from before the pandemic that didn't make a, a special. So I had sort of that, that I, you know, that I could hang something on. But then I'll just make, you know, outlines and write things down. And I'll book out a theater, like the kind of theater you had, like here, the Dynasty Typewriter. Seats like maybe 200, maybe and I'll just say, look, I'm working through stuff and, and, you know, and I'll sell tickets. And I got enough of the fan base that are interested in that. I used to do a $5 ticket at the Steve Allen Theater and give the proceeds to the theater. And just like I would basically say, like, I don't know what I got, but I'm going to get up and talk yeah. for an hour or two and, and see what hits. And that's my process is like I am one of these guys and the, get, the joy of it is if I'm stuck on stage, 
you know, I some part of me knows at this point that I'm supposed to be funny. So if I'm talking about something and I don't know where it's going, you know, the, the need to be funny will kick in and then the, the, the punchline will be delivered to me. I don't know where they come from, but like it happens in a real moment and then I got to remember it or write it down and then it becomes part of the act. So that's really my process is refining by, and by talking. So it's by repetition and just by getting up there and it, like things get disorganized and things get lost like that. I think joke writers, uh, you know, have a benefit in that like they can just have a, a, a fairly effective way of cataloging everything they're saying. But with me, it's continuing to talk through these ideas and let them kind of evolve on. I just got a new punchline the other night. I yeah. like when things connect to other things and create callbacks. I did a show two nights ago and I got two new callbacks just out of necessity because I was left hanging. I was talking and I had nowhere to go with it. And something came out of the world, out of the ether. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And I write that down. Cool. And That's are you recording problem. the sets when you're doing them? Like those, uh, yeah. Yeah. You, but you I never record it, but it. don't listen. I, I, I hundreds of hundreds. <laughs> but yeah, you don't listen, of, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't listen. That's hilarious. That You probably got three more hours. Yeah. Of un unlistened to material. I know. That's all that's left of my self-sabotaging. Like yeah, I used to be much more effective at self-sabotaging. Now I just I just don't listen to the sets. And I, I go I, I get something cool. done anyway. Well let's talk know. about the Wilbur. What's the name of the show at the Wilbur? What can people expect? Because I wanna I wanna do my best to get as many people in there as we can because you're a great performer and uh you deserve it, man. Yeah, the second show could use people. Yeah, I because uh, I just added that second show. So I think the first show sold out. Well, I mean, you know, the name of the tour is uh, okay. this may be the last time. And I and that's it doesn't mean I'm retiring. I mean, for everybody. <laughs> so so it's really it's really just where I'm at right now. Just talking about I, it seems the theme that's sort of happening is just sort of really reckoning with the amount of stupidity in the world, but also the scary stupidity, but also the fact that we all kind of know that things are, you know, there's something's impending and it's not good. And we all kind of feel it. And we're all coming out of this very traumatic time of the pandemic. But we're now that we're kind of through it or else we just we're not really post COVID, but we're sort of fuck COVID. So but there's still that feeling of of of, of nervousness. And I, I'm trying to kind of like focus on that. I, I do a very I'm, I'm working on this very dark bit about like, you know, what is our place as an entertainer? What are we really doing as entertainers or as comedians? And I've been sort of stuck on this image about, you know, when someone's uh, Jimmy, when somebody's like dying in the hospital you know what he hears from everybody you know about three weeks before he dies <laughs> you're gonna make it you're gonna get through this that's sort of what we're doing <laughs> as entertainers right now oh man well i'll, I'll be at the show saturday <laughs> night i'm excited to be there i'm at the first show i'm excited to be there mark uh people can find out more about you i don't think i know i don't know that i don't know if i sold it that well let me make it clear that you know I, I am sort of a, a, a dark-minded person, but it's all very funny. And and if you're like-minded, certainly it's, you're going to enjoy it. Of course it's funny, man. It's it's hilarious. It was a, I was at the one at the Schubert, the last one you were at. That was great. I, I look forward oh, yeah. to coming this Saturday night. I want to encourage my audience to come. If you have never seen Mark, you got to check it out. If you have never listened to the podcast, it's one of the best ever. And that's no exaggeration. It really is. The guy's a great interviewer. That's why Thanks, people Carl. like Obama and George Clooney and Robin Williams and Keith Richards. George Clooney, George Clooney is sort of like talking to a president. Yeah, to talk to George Clooney, it's kind. 
Yeah, he's so you, you kind of talk to him and you're like, why can't you just be president? He's great. He, it was a great interview. That's why people do the show, because, you, you know, you're incredibly smart. You ask great questions. You keep the conversation going. You're really interesting. Thanks. And it's a, it's a it's an awesome thing. And again, that came out of nowhere. And that's what I love about your success. And that's what I love about the comics, because all of us, there are no rules. And there was yeah. nobody really guiding you along. There's more yeah. support now than there ever was. You know, yeah. there's comedy classes and all yeah. that. All that. Thank God. Stuff. Thank God for bad parenting. <laughs> we were all just sent out on our own <laughs> to figure out how to live in the world. Mark, what else can you tell us before we go? Well, it's always great to see you, Jimmy. And I'm I'm happy that you're doing okay. You always yeah. make me happy. It's great to see you. And uh, you know, I'm just uh, trying to, you know, stay sane. And right. not get too dry, live a sober life, and and right. and, and stay By the funny, way, I know? saw that you're hosting a, a gala up in the Montreal uh, Comedy Festival. That'll be fun. I know, I know. Yeah, Mark, Great you and I be. did that 2007, I think, we were up there. We, do you remember? It was me, you, on the bill. It was me, yep. you. John Oliver was the host. Yeah, yeah. Me, you. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah, yeah. We were on yeah. that. And, and we I did think it, it was yeah. 2007. Might have been yeah. Colin Quinn might have been on it. Couple of other guys. I'm very excited to do it. You know, and it, it, it's so funny though about Canadian television. It's like I've been on so many of those galas in so many different Canadian markets, and I've never heard anybody tell me they saw it. Really? <laughs> not a tweet, not an email, nothing ever. I got to be on nine Canadian stand-up shows. No feedback. Zero. <laughs> well, that's going to change this summer. When are the, when are the dates for that? <laughs> Good, when are good, the dates? Good segue. Yeah. What are the dates? I have no idea. Hey, right. uh, it's, it's the Montreal July. Comedy Festival in July. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mark. Great to see you. Thanks again Thanks. for uh, being on today. Thanks for helping us out with this. And Brendan's been a, a joy to work with. And we're going to ask him for some more advice as well. Yeah. I, Brendan's pretty generous with advice. <laughs> he loves you, buddy. All right. I'll see you later. Thanks so much, Mark. Bye. Take care. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a Humor for Humanity production. I am the founder of Humor for Humanity, a social enterprise that raises spirits, funds, and awareness for nonprofits, charities, and social causes. You can find out how we can help you or your organization raise spirits, funds, and awareness for you and yours. Our mission is your mission. Humor for Humanity at JimmyTingle.com. Thank you. Thank you.